You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. We are on chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, this document uh, that as a church we hold to. A theological document. And so I would encourage you to grab a copy if you have a hymnal sitting around you or uh, if you buy your own copy, I'd encourage you to buy one and bring it. Uh, you can get it on your phone, different apps. You can just search Westminster Confession of Faith on Google and there's a thousand different online options you can find. And we're in chapter 23, so I would encourage you to find a copy of it somehow and we'll be walking through it. Our chapter is of the civil magistrate um, or magistrate, however you want to say it. Uh, civil magistrate. Um, and we have been going through the confession in uh, the last few weeks in a, in a series that makes some kind of logical sense. Um, it may not be apparent on the surface, but we began with um, chapter 19 or chapter 20 of Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. Um, and we are free now to obey God. We're free from the bondage of sin and we have liberty and there's a freedom of a liberty of conscience as well. Uh, that we believe we have, and you can go back, uh, Pastor Wright uh, taught on that one. Religious worship. So worship comes out of liberty of conscience and freedom of of, uh, Christian liberty and liberty of conscience uh, because now we are free to worship the Lord as he has told us to to worship him. We're now free to do this. And uh, that's one of the reasons that we worship, we only do what scripture commands because if we do more than scripture commands in worship, we're now binding people's consciences in ways scripture hasn't bound our consciences. So uh, our our principle of worship arises out in part our um, view of the freedom of uh, liberty of conscience. And then lawful oaths and vows was connected to worship. We saw that very, very briefly. And now we're moving to the civil magistrate this week. And, and it is connected. It kind of arises from uh, Christian liberty, liberty of conscience. So the question is, um, is government legitimate? Uh, what can the government tell me to do? And so it's arising out of some of the, the same soil. And we'll see next week uh, marriage and divorce before we get to the church. And so really we have now these two institutions, um, the church and the state. And how do these relate? How do Christians think about them? And in the middle, we have, have marriage, which uh, logically comes after the magistrate. And so it's, an, it's, a, it's a, a common institution for all people, but it's kind of wedged in between church and state because there are these uh, um, religious aspects to it that we'll get to next week. Um, so there is some kind of logic, maybe I made it muddier uh, even for you in that brief explanation, but there is some logic in how these are connected. And we're looking at the civil magistrate today. I will bring up my resources for you as I like to do. Um, maybe this is your least favorite part, and if it is, you can tune out for the next three minutes. Um, uh, general resources. I again commend all these classic and more modern works of systematic theology to you. All of them will treat the state. This is a classic um, loci in systematic or locus uh, in systematic theology. Um, all theologians will discuss this. Um, and then here are more particular. Um, resources that I want to alert you to on civil government and two kingdoms. And, and I use this language, two kingdoms. It's a classical reformed category, speaking of, and reformation category as well, um, because Lutherans speak of this as well. 
Um, it's a, a distinction between this common kingdom that we're all a part of on this earth with all people uh, in the, the civil sphere, but there's also this kingdom, this special um, redemptive kingdom of Christ. And Christians are members of both of these kingdoms. And how, the question is, how do they interplay? For the Christian, what does it mean to be in, in both worlds, both kingdoms, as it were? So um, I've recommended these first two books before. Uh, David Van Drunen, Living in God's Two Kingdoms, A Biblical Vision for Christianity and Culture. Our discussion of government is kind of one step into this world of, of saying, how do Christians relate to those outside the church? And the government is kind of a test case for that. And there's all kinds of other issues, uh, education and arts and all kinds of th- these other things. And we're getting a, a, uh, a taste of that. This book goes beyond government and talks more broadly and holistically. Uh, I would highly recommend it. If you're thinking about Christianity and culture issues, it's a great starting point. And the second book, again, I recommended this a few weeks ago, Politics After Christendom. It's by, again, David Van Drunen. Uh, It's the same idea except applied particularly to government and law, more uh, directly applicable to uh, this chapter 23 of the Confession. So I'll pass those around. You can look at them uh, if you would like. Um, John Calvin has a fantastic treatment of this in the Institutes. It's a whole chapter in book four of his Institutes. Highly recommend that. You can get that online for free. Um, And I've recommended this book over and over. This has a wonderful chapter. Uh, This is J.V. Fesco, The Theology of the Westminster Standards. It's not a line-by-line commentary on the confession, but it's a a, a topic-by-topic kind of digging underneath the confession and saying, where did this arise from theologically? What was happening um, at the time of the assembly and happened before uh, to, to give rise to these issues? And there's a chapter on the church and a subsection in there on the state um, that is phenomenal. And that's probably the best place I would say if you want a short treatment, start there. And then actually there's a number of good places online. If you go to Monergism, I don't know if you're familiar with this website. They have a whole resource page on the two kingdoms um, and different resources there. A particular article here by Michael Horton and that's it. So um, I'll, leave it, I'll leave it there. There's a million things. This has been a particular area of interest for me going back to law school. And um, I've, um, anyway, done some thinking on this. And uh, I'm excited that we can dive in a little bit today in you know, these few minutes that I always run out of uh, very quickly. So um, any thoughts, concerns before we jump in this morning? Okay. Very good. So, of the civil magistrate, chapter 23 of the confession, um, we're painting in broad brushstrokes here. So, the confession is not going to answer all the questions that we have, but it's going to set up broad parameters. Um, You're either thinking one of two things. One, how is thinking about government, how is this spiritual? Is this really a spiritual thing? Should Christians really think much about this? Is it worth giving a whole Sunday school to this? Um, Or you're on the other side of saying, Clearly, the last year and a half, uh, we've had to think a lot about the church and the state. So this is a really important topic. So you're on one or two sides. I do think this is important, as the last year and a half has shown us. And it is spiritual, um, because we are thinking, how do we as Christians glorify God in this world? And one of those main uh, institutions the Lord has set up in this world is the state, the civil magistrate. Um, And so it is important. Uh, think of the historical setting of the confession. Um, Parliament, the English government, called the assembly to meet. So the assembly was meeting, doing this great theological work at the beckoning of the government. The government was telling them what to do, and there were actually fights between Parliament and the assembly. And so we have a very interesting um, situation, and we actually today, the text of the confession we're looking at 
uh, is the text that we call have the American revisions. So there are a number of revisions. If we have time, we'll get to what these are. Um, a number of revisions that we made to the confession thinking actually the divines got it wrong on church and state. And so when Presbyterianism comes to America, we say, hold on, we have some different views of what um, government should be. And, um, and so we changed the confession accordingly in 1788. So about 100 years after the confession was written. Um, okay, I'm sorry. Enough, enough uh, preliminary discussion. Let's go into the text. The first section, chapter 23, section 1, we're laying out the question, or answering the question, is government a legitimate institution and what is its purpose? What is its end? So we'll read, we'll read the whole thing. God, the supreme Lord and King of all worlds, of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. Okay, a lot here. We'll, we'll go back and, and take it chunk by chunk. We'll first look at this first chunk. God, the supreme Lord and King over all the world. So this is an incredibly important preface here to this, what's coming. Uh, this is the king of the universe, the creator of the universe, the God over all. This is uh, the Lord of all creation, all people who has set up governments. Um, and we, we are thinking, um, comparing and contrasting here, the civil government and the church. There's a chapter on the church that's to come uh, in a few weeks. But we are thinking, we need to be thinking, um, how does this relate to the church? And what is different about this in the church? And we see in the church, the head of the church, yes, is God. We can say abstractly, but more precisely, it is Jesus Christ, the mediator. So Christ is the head of the church. So we see this redemptive kingdom where Christ is the head. And then we have this common kingdom for all people where, where God, the triune God, sits atop and oversees and is Lord of. Uh, so there's some, some fine distinctions that they're making right at the beginning. It is God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world. And he hath ordained civil magistrates. So this is the answer to our question. Is government legitimate? Yes. Government is legitimate and good. It is ordained by God. And the, the major um, uh, scripture references here, if you have a, a copy of the confession, you'll see these. First, uh, sorry, Romans 13 and then 1 Peter. Both of these, uh, these books, First Corinthians, or, sorry, uh, Romans 13, has a, um, probably the most robust treatment of the government in the New Testament. And 1 Peter has some important um, insight to add to that as well. And so they're mainly pulling from these two places here. Um, but this is a legitimate institution. Um, so this government is under God. Okay, so all governments are under the authority and God uh, of God. They are accountable to God. All governments are accountable to God. And they will be held account on the final day for how they ruled well, how they ruled. Did they rule justly or did they rule unjustly? Did they honor God or did they not? And so they are under his authority and they are over the people. Over the people. Who are the people? Well, the people of all the world. Government is over all people. All people are subject to governing authorities. And God has instituted it this way. And so uh, this is setting um, the reformed view up against uh, maybe you maybe have heard of the Anabaptists, the radical reformation view, where they, they rejected all government. They rejected all secular government, all common government. They said, no, Christians are, are to uh, not participate, not be a part of this at all. We are to withdraw from the world and create our own 
government structure. And to participate in that is evil in and of itself. And so the divines here are saying, no, no, the government is over all people, Christians and non-Christians alike. And that's important. And then, of course, comparing that with the church, the church is an institution for Christians. It is for those who are redeemed, those who profess Jesus Christ um, and their children. If we're talking about visible or invisible kingdom, we'd... um, um, we define it slightly differently. But the point is the church has a limited scope and the, the, the state has a broad scope over all people. And then the ends of the state are listed here for his own glory, for God's own glory, and the public good. So the ultimate, the ultimate goal of everything is the glory of God. But the proximate end, the proximate goal of government is the good of the public, the public good, the common welfare. Um, it's important here to say what it, they did not say. Um, it's for God's glory and the common good, not for the redemption of all things, not to proclaim the gospel, not for giving a picture of eternal life, not for calling men to faith and repentance, but for preserving of the world until the day of Christ's return. And if you want to read uh, Van Drunen, um, Again, R. Van Drunen's fifth cousin, uh, so there is some relation. But if you want to read David Van Drunen, he'll talk about this and ground this theologically in the Noahic Covenant. And we can even go before that and see where, where it shows up um, uh, after um, uh, Cain killed Abel. We see the, the institution of government in, on earth. But um, he grounds it in the Noahic Covenant where the God promises he's going to preserve the earth until Christ returns. So there's a preservative nature of what civil government is doing. It's not ultimately to usher in the kingdom of God, but it's to preserve the world for a time that redemption can unfold. And that's what uh, the divines are getting at by their um, brief statements here. Um, A few more notes here on this first section. To this end, hath armed them, God hath armed the civil magistrates with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. And this is a language that's pulled straight out of Romans 13. And the sword, this is important, the, the, the state wields the sword of punishment and coercion, a physical sword, a real sword. Um, but does the church wield a sword? No. And they'll say this later. But the church does not wield the sword. The church wields the word of God. They have merely ministerial and declarative authority of what God has said in his word, whereas the state has a legitimate legislative authority and they wield the sword to encourage what is good and to limit and prohibit evil. Um, All right, there's a lot there and I just, you know, I just threw a lot at you, but let's stop and, and, you know, take a load off and, and see where your questions, concerns are at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the question is, is there, uh, are, are leaders, uh, civil uh, leaders, the civil magistrate, is he held to a higher standard uh, on judgment day than the common pe- person? And I would say yes, because they have a great responsibility. Um, with your responsibility does come a level of judgment. And if you use that authority and that power, legitimate authority and legitimate power, if you use that unjustly, that will, you will reap a uh, harvest for that on the final day. So yes, there is a seriousness um, of judgment that will come upon those who, who use their power for ill and not for good. What else? Yeah. Rod, question. Do you 
believer, what is your thought on the Bible being a guide also to shape politics? Right, so is the Bible to be used to shape politics? Um, in the broad term. In, in, in what's that? In the broad term. In the broad term, right. So should we use scripture to say the government should do this or, or use scripture to argue for X, Y, and Z? Um, and hence, you know, is, does the church then become in some way or another political? Right. Does the church become political? Right. So I would say a couple of things. One, um, oh, where, where to start? This is a, an important but somewhat loaded question. Because if I say, well, no, don't use the Bible. It's like, wait, what? Um, if I say yes, then, when, then what's the goal of, the, of the, the government? Is the government then to institute Christendom or to institute, um, the, is it to be the church on a broad, broad scale? So what's the goal of the church? So we have a little bit of a disagreement here between us and the divines. Or I should say me and the divines. Can't speak for everybody here. Um, and the divines, at the time they wrote this, they had the belief that the civil government was to enforce um, both tables of the moral law. Step back. What is the both tables of moral law? The moral law of God, this is, uh, we've talked about this in the chapter on the law of God. It's kind of, uh, we'd say, codified most clearly in the Ten Commandments, but it is inscribed on every person's heart by virtue of being made in the image of God. And every person is bound to obey the moral law of God. And it includes honor God. Um, you shall have no other gods before him. It includes all Ten Commandments and all their implications and everything that they, that they require. So that is required of all people. And the divines would say the government is to enforce both tables of that. Now, if you remember, um, uh, commandments one through four deal with our relationship to God and worship and Sabbath keeping and all these things. And so the divines believed it was the government's job to enforce these things. The government was to protect um, the church and to keep it clear of heresies. It was to protect the church uh, from false teaching and false doctrine. That was the government's job. And this was a very standard view until the American project, frankly. Uh, we are radical in thinking that the government is not inherently a religious institution um, or a Christian institution. And so we would say, uh, with the American revisions, what the American revisions say, is that no, it's not the government's job to enforce the first table of the, of the moral law of God. Um, you shall have no other gods before me. Do not make any images. Um, do not take the Lord's name in vain. The Sabbath. The government is to not enforce these. That's not the government's job, but is to enforce the second table of the Ten Commandments because uh, the second table is dealing with man's relationship to man. Um, and it goes back to the purpose. The purpose of this is preservative. Government is preservative by nature. It is not redemptive by nature. And what it's doing is preserving um, a safe ordered sort of liberty for all people. The ability for men to freely um, have uh, relations and to do commerce and to engage together. Um, so the, the goal of the government then, according to the American revisions, as it's codified in our Westminster Confession, is the government is now to enforce um, to a, you know, it can't enforce number 10, uh, you shall not covet. It can't enforce that. But it enforces the external nature of, of um uh, uh, commands five through 10. And so it is to help regulate man's relationship to man and to create a safe ordered society. So the question is, okay, I just said is to enforce the 10 commandments. So does that mean I, you know, we go and we say, well, commandment six is you shall not murder. Therefore do not murder. Well, I think 
It's possible. I'm not sure that's the most effective, especially in this day and age. But what is true is the moral law of God is written on the hearts of every single person. Every legislator, every member of society, every person has the moral law of God written on their hearts. And they know the truth. Now, we do suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul says in, in Romans 1 and 2. But there is a seed of truth that every person understands. And so I think as we argue in the secular sphere, in the government sphere, in the political sphere, I think it is good to pursue, you shall not murder, thou shall not murder. And I think that includes, yeah, abortion. That includes all kinds of things. That includes unjust killings. That includes lynchings. That includes racial uh, injustice. These things are uh, implications of the sixth commandment that we should care about. But... Now the question is, what does that mean in the sphere of politics? Does that mean I now, as a minister, say, okay, you must vote for this candidate? It means this is the policy that you must care about. Take the issue, issue of abortion. We were just talking about this the other day. Uh, I've, been talking, you know, I've talked to a few people recently about this. Take the issue of abortion. We can say, yes, abortion isn't evil. Absolutely. This is terrible. And we do not, it's not good for society. It's not good for individuals. It's clearly not good for the individuals being killed. But what do we say then as a church? Do we say, you therefore must vote for every single person who is pro-life? Well, maybe. I don't think the church, though, can mandate that because what about your uh, city council? What if somebody there is pro-life versus pro-choice? Or what if somebody there is pro-choice, as they say? Well, I think there are Christians can disagree on this point. And And it's this. Somebody could say, well, he's a city council member, and the city council has nothing to do with, with uh, the life of the unborn. They have no authority to do anything legislatively or morally that affects that at all, so I can vote for a pro-choice person. Air quotes, right? Pro-choice. Um, so I can vote for that, and my conscience is clear. Other Christians might say, I clearly cannot do that because that means all kinds of other things about them. I can never vote for that kind of person. And I think Christians can disagree on this point. And so I, I'm taking your question and, and trying to take it a few different places. Um, but my point is this. We need to be very careful about saying this is the Christian political way of doing something. With, I think we all ought to be pro-life. Does that mean you have to vote for X, Y, and Z candidate? No. Does that mean you must go and pick at the abortion clinic? No. Does that mean you must give money to every pregnancy resource center? No. Does that mean you must volunteer 20 hours a week to do X, Y, and Z? No. But every Christian will, in their own way, be involved in these things to varying degrees. And we can't bind the consciences, liberty of conscience, we can't bind the consciences of Christians and say, you must once a month pick at an abortion clinic. We can't say that. Scripture doesn't say that. We can say, maybe that's a good thing to do. Maybe if that's uh, something you're interested in or know about, you can do that. Maybe you can write a check to great, wonderful uh, pro-life organizations. Maybe you can run for office yourself and seek to change the state legislator, because most of this is happening at the state legislative level um, today. And we have a case before the Supreme Court that could change things, um, and we hope it does. Um, But all that to say, it's very complicated. And I want to be very careful of binding any Christian's conscience. And that goes back to, do we use the Bible in the public sphere? Um, I would say that it's probably best to appeal to um, unbelievers have no view of any like, uh, scripture. It's worthless to them. It's, it's a book of fairy tale, tales and fables and myths. It means nothing. So appealing to scripture probably is not going to be helpful in our day and age. I think what we do need to do is appeal to the fact that every person has the moral law of God written on their heart. And we see the natural law is an important category that we've touched on before. Reed Van Drunen, he's great on that. Uh, The natural law is that the law of God written on our heart, the moral law of God written on our heart, we can appeal to that. Say, look, it's not good for society when you allow abortions like we do. 
And you can say, look at the breakdowns. Look how it's bad for the family. Look how it's bad for a view of sex. Look how it's bad for so many different things. And we can argue on those bases because it's just frankly not good. These are not arbitrary rules. God has not given us the moral law. God has arbitrary set of rules. He's given it to us because this is good for us. And so we can argue on other bases that the following God's law is good. That's a lot. But yeah, follow up. I know it's a lot. Thank you. And I actually on the head what I was what I was aiming to. My, my question was on the fundamental level, in which, as we talk, and I, and I don't know what everybody will be able to think about this, but what, let's say, for example, when you talk about apologetics, right? You have a classical school, right? You have, right. You know, in reform circles, Presbyterian school, probably others. But so basically, one is appears like like you said, in which there's some inherent reasoning that is intact in men. That is able to, by uh, uh, you know, appealing to some degree of neutral ground, right. appeal and reason to together. Versus precision is what, what I say. No, there's no neutral ground. It's a myth. Right, right. You are for God and you are against God. Right. And um, and therefore, you've got to stand on the word of the Lord. You've got to stand on Scripture yep. about every single aspect in society and everything that you feel. And Personally, I would be more of that kind, sure. and not sure. in the neutral kind. So, so right. I would say, I would say personally that the Bible is a political book, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's not it's not exhaustive. Right. And I agree that there are some areas of that we can disagree, we can have grace as we have grace in others. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. we stand in the Word of God for what it teaches for everything that. that I right. So I cannot. I I would not. Personally, I say I'm going to leave the, the Bible out and argue with this in this neutral point. Yeah. Because yeah. in reality, I didn't see that as being right. So, yeah. So you use the word neutral, not me. Um, and I'll say neutral is not how I would describe it. So I think and you're right. You're right in the world of apologetics, but I think this is different because government is is not a redemptive reality. We're not seeking to regenerate hearts. We're not asking for the Lord to regenerate hearts in the civil sphere. Yes, of course, we want all people to be saved. But that's a different question than what's happening here on simply laws and policies and government. And so what I would say, it's not neutral. Um, it, is, it is moral, absolutely, because it is, like we've talked about, they're held accountable to, to God for what they're doing. It is moral, but it's a morality based upon the fact that we are imprinted by, with the image of God, imprinted with the natural law, the moral law of God. And the scripture reflects that. So as Christians, we understand that better than others. I know we're going down a rabbit trail. We'll pull it back here in a second. Um, and, but when we think theologically, what is scripture? It is a covenant document given to God's covenant people. And so I don't think we can theologically say this document, therefore, is something that binds other people. It certainly calls every people to come to Christ. But it, it is a covenant document given to God's covenant people. And we can go theologically all down that road. So I push back, although I agree with your impulse and agree with that desire. And I think at the end of the day, we're not so far apart. But we might, you know, we have some different theological justifications. One here. Um, so, so, when, so when we try to figure out this natural law, you say we suppress the truth by our wickedness. And so right. when we're trying to figure out, when we want to argue, when you want to convince somebody of the, the, the general natural law, we would, we, we would first want our own eyes clear right. from our own biases yeah. by looking at Scripture. Right, and right, so exactly. And so we understand the natural law through the lens of Scripture, and then we can present that... Yeah. 
more clear view of the natural law That's right. as we're appealing, rather than just purely using ourselves just yeah, and, and that's an important point because Christians do have a real advantage here of knowing what God has said and clearly sharpening our ability to understand the law of God um, in the way that the non-Christian uh, doesn't have the ability to do. Although they have echoes of it and they understand echoes, um, the Christians are able to more clearly articulate that. And yeah. The last thing is it's all common grace. This is all grace. That's right. We can even understand or we can even understand. All this is great. That's right. And we'd, we'd differentiate between common grace over all mankind. And this is a common grace kingdom. Um, it's, it's grace because God could strike every single person dead at this moment and sentence every person to eternal judgment. But he's not. That, that judgment is, is stayed. He's holding that judgment and allowing the world, preserving the world for a time that people would come to him, that all of the elect would come to him. Okay, good stuff. Um, I apologize if that's too much in the weeds for you. This is, as you can tell, something I'm interested in. Um, Section two, the question is this, may Christians serve as magistrates, whether greater magistrates or lesser magistrates, president or, you know, clerk of court, um, may Christians serve? And um, we'll read the answer here. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto. So the answer is yes, Christians may legitimately serve in the government. In the managing whereof, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth, so for that end they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasion. A couple things here. They leave open the possibility that Christians may not be able to do everything they're commanded to do uh, by the government uh, when you're working for the government. Um, a lesser magistrate may have a greater magistrate who says, do this, and he says, no, I can't do that. They're leaving open the possibility that you may have to disobey working for the magistrate and when you are part of the government. And then it also says uh, Christians may engage in war. So they're saying here, we are not pacifists. Christians may engage in just and necessary war. So there's a whole tradition of just war theory, and they're tapping into that uh, here. And if you want to talk about that, today's not our day. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about it another time, um, and I can give you resources. But there are occasions where it is just for governments to engage in war for the welfare of their people. Um, and it is okay for Christians to do that. And if you have a copy of the confession with footnotes, uh, you'll see that there's footnoting there all these places in the New Testament where soldiers are converted. Uh, soldiers, Roman soldiers come to Christ and they're never told, well, you need to leave your profession now. You can't fight any longer. Uh, they're always, they're able to serve. They're able to fight. And it's a good and honorable thing. And there's a long tradition of reformed uh, people who served in the government, who served in the military, who fought honorably and nobly. And so there's a long history of uh, these reformed participants um, doing this and chaplains as well. So um, we can tip our hat to that and, and show our thanks for them and all those who serve. So um, that's a little bit of an aside point they make here. Um, I'm going to not answer questions. Let's keep going. Um, section three. Now we begin to see limitations on the civil magistrate. What can and can't the civil magistrate do? Uh, what can and can't is that? That's not right. What may they and may they not do? Um, and we're, I'm not going to read the whole thing. We'll just go section by section and read as much as, as, as is, is important for some comments. Civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments. So again, we're talking about church and state differences here. The church, 
The state is not the church. The state does not preach. The state does not give you the Lord's Supper. The state does not baptize you. So very clear. It does not assume to itself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And what they're getting at here is church discipline. The state may not excommunicate you. The state does not have the authority to say you are not a Christian. But the church does. The church has this authority that we'll get to in a few weeks. Um, Or in the least, interfere in matters of faith. So the government may not interfere in matters of faith. It may not come in and say, you must believe this. It may not come in and interfere with what you're doing. And we'll see later more directly how how they tackle that idea. But I will say, beginning with or, through the end of this section, all of this is new under the American revisions. These were not originally here. And if we have time, we'll, I'll show you what was originally there. Um, but it said, at, at, uh, what they said, the government did have a, a job in um, stomping out heresy. It did have, it was called to punish unbelief. It was called to do these sorts of things. And the American revision said, no, we don't believe that's right. Uh, we believe um, um, these other things. And, and we'll, let's, let's go to the next section. We'll see more positively what the, the government should do. Yet as nursing fathers, interesting image, it is, the duty of, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord. So again, this common idea, the, 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 the Lord is Lord of all, and the government is to protect the church of this Lord. And we'll see which church, without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest. So we can't say, the government should not say, we are a Presbyterian state. It would not be right for Ohio to say, we are Presbyterian, only Presbyterians may, um, may live in Ohio. Um, we would become a very small state if they did. Um, but that is not right. The government is not called to do that, make those kinds of distinctions, to say what is true, what is false, ultimately, with regard to theology. Um, So it's not to give any uh, preference to any denomination of Christian above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. So we have this idea here of free exercise of religion, and we have freedom of assembly. These ideas, 1788, uh, when when was the, yes? So what about non-Christian? Right, that's a great question. And when this was, uh, when this was um, uh, ratified in 1788, uh, the general consensus was, yes, that we would have generally Christian uh, people governing. And that was all who really existed in, in America at that time. And so it is, uh, parts of this are specifically talking about Christians um, but there's other language that opens it up beyond that. I think if you get into the framers of this in their mind, they were, they were talking about Christians because they couldn't imagine anything else. They couldn't imagine atheists actually being contributing members of society because that's changed. Um, and so what, oh, yeah, I'll circle back there. Um, so I would, I would say it does apply more broadly, even though at the time that in their mind, there was only this narrow view of it. What, would you say that it was only because of their limited imagination or that, in fact, they didn't think the government should encourage apostasy and I think seeing what they've changed uh, and how, how significant of the change was from the... Who has changed? 
the American revisions, how significantly it changed. And, it, and again, if we have time, I'll show you what they changed, what they took out. Um, they took out that kind of language. And they replaced it with this, no, we're general protectors of, of all people. And so I would say um, they, they didn't have an understanding of the fact that, that like, if you outright denied any God exists, they didn't think how that kind of person could be a contributing member of society in any way. I do think it was just a, a product at the time. Um, but I'm sure people would disagree with me. So. But that is, that is an important question and something to be wrestled with. Um, let's see. So let's, let's keep, uh, keep reading along. We're beginning with and right in the middle of that chap- chapter or that section. And as Jesus Christ hath appointed a regular government and discipline in his church. So the church is over here. No law of any commonwealth should interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their own profession of faith. So again, we have particularly Christian here. I was talking about, even though before they had some more broad language. <laughs> Um, and, and historically, this is interesting because um, 1788 is when this was approved. 1789 is when the text of basically what it became our Bill of Rights was uh, proposed. And in 1791, it was ratified. So we have in here a freedom of exercise, uh, freedom of assembly uh, in things that the, the Presbyterians were saying, this is a right of all people, even before the government recognized it. So the government, actually Presbyterians, especially in Virginia, were behind uh, freedom, um, freedom of religion in a way that um, they were, they were kind of on the forefront of, of exploring these ideas and advocating for them. So we see the, gov- the, the Presbyterians changing their statement of faith even before on the American government uh, officially um, recognized these rights. It is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the person and good name of all their people. Again, we're going back to this universal language in such an effectual manner as that no persons be suffered either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity. So there we go. There's the, the religion or infidelity, whether you're a believer or not, you, can, you should not suffer upon this uh, to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever and to take order uh, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. A lot of words, not the most succinct section of our document. Maybe it's because the Americans wrote it instead of the Brits. I don't know. But, um, but we get this idea that it's to protect all people, whether they have religion or whether they're uh, infidels. Um, so we have that language again here. Let's uh, move to section four, our duty to the magistrate. What is our duty? And we first see this first sentence. These are all almost uh, word for word taking out of uh, Scripture, taking commands straight from Scripture and plopping them down on the page for us. It is the duty of people to pray for magistrates, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute or other dues, to obey their lawful commands and to be subject to their authority for conscience sake. And again, all of those come straight from Scripture. Infidelity or difference in religion doth not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority. Right? So they're saying, even if you are of a different religion, even if you profess a false religion, even if you are an infidel, that does not change the fact you have just and uh, legal authority. Nor does this free people from their due obedience to them. Christians are called to obey, um, to obey, obey a Mormon if a Mormon was in authority over us. We're called to obey an atheist if an atheist is in authority over us. So these things do not free the people from our obedience, from which ecclesiastical persons are not exempted. So they're saying, you know, at times you may be exempted, but even if you're not exempted from certain laws, uh, you are to obey them. Much less hath the Pope. So then we go to the last section, the Pope. 
Um, basically saying the Pope does not have authority over civil magistrates the way the Pope uh, thinks he does. Uh, and much less have the Pope any power and jurisdiction over them and their dominions or over any of their people, and least of all to deprive them of their dominions or lives if he shall judge them to be heretics or upon any other pretense whatsoever. So the, the Pope would often go through and excommunicate a ruler, uh, a king or, or somebody who's, who's in authority, and say, you're excommunicated, you've got to get off the throne, and then the, the, and the Pope would try to put in one of his people on the throne instead. And what they're saying is, no, 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 no. Pope, stay out of politics. Um, you can't do that. And so that was, that's their last section. So, okay, we, we read the text of this all, um, and that's about all we've done. Um, did I see a hand in the back? You covered a lot. It's hard to follow everything. Kind of going through. You go, go fast. But yeah. is there an obligation that Christians have to be involved in politics? Yeah. Um, are Christians obligated to be involved in politics? Are we obligated to be politicians? No. Um, would we say prior to American and democracy, really, um, that question really wouldn't make, make sense. Because before that, there was a ruling class and you just did what they said. Uh, that was the time of the Reformation. That's what was going on. Most people were not engaged in politics. Most people could do nothing about it. Most people just did whatever the powerful person over them told them to do. So this is kind of a, a new question. Uh, do, we, do we need to be engaged? Is it an obligation to be engaged in politics? And I would say this. We have been given um, real civil um, power by our Constitution. All of us are clothed with certain powers um, for the good of others. And we need to exercise it um, for the good of other people. And so insofar as it reflects a love of neighbor, we are called to be engaged in politics. Does that mean you have to read the newspaper every day and listen to you know, podcasts and talk radio and all that kind of stuff? No, it doesn't mean that. But I do think there does need to be some level of informed understanding um, so that you can love your neighbor because your lack of participation is, a, is, is not engaging in loving your neighbor. Um, and so I would say there is... There is a level, but it's not, you know, being a political junkie. That's not the requirement of, of us. Yeah. What about sacrament of marriage when you deal with that, when you say it's civil? That's right. So we'll come to that next week. That's a great, that's a great. Next week, we will talk about marriage. And uh, they'll say it is not a sacrament, um, and, but it is for the common good of all people. Um, and so we'll, we'll get to that next week. We'll talk about marriage and divorce next week. Should we promote uh, this type of government in Muslim countries or in, in, in India, in right. non-Christian places? Right. Our, so, we, like an American government, so, you're uh, saying? A government according to these. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, freedom of liberty, freedom of conscience, these kinds of things. Uh, yes. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And Van Drunen makes a compelling case for that, I believe, in, his, in the, the politics after Christendom, saying uh, these things are do arise out of... Um, the No Eight Covenant, these biblical principles, um, and these things are good. Now, the quite real question is, what is our ability to do any of this stuff? Can we do that? That's, that's a question, and Christians can disagree. Is it even worth trying in certain places? Um, because are we able to be effective? That's where we can have legitimate degree, disagreements. But I do think we can say it would be better if these people are being uh, deprived of their right to worship God. That's, a, that's wrong of governments to not allow Christians to worship. And so they ought to be changed. Now, how do we do that? That's the, the you know, big question. Um, all right. Any, anything like really burning? So we as Christians, great question. Great, great question. We as Christians, not we the church. So that, thank you for making that. 
Okay. We as Christians, not we the church. That's a really important distinction. And I'm really glad you made it at the last moment before we leave and confused everybody. Um, because there is a difference between the church as an institution acting through its leaders and then Christians in the world engaged in different things. The church is not a political organization in that we're going to go prop up candidates and say, do these things. Christians can do that. Christians can go work on campaigns. Christians can do whatever, you, you know, whatever is moral and right. Um, can't say Christians can do anything. Um, but yeah, Christians can be engaged in that, but the church doesn't do that. In the same way, I think you're talking about making political changes in other nations. That's not the church's job, um, but Christians can do that. All right. Thank you for making that distinction. Uh, this is a lot here. Uh, look at the text of the confession, read it over, study it, think about it. Um, it's fun for me. I apologize if it's not fun for anybody else. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful uh, that you have placed us in a place where we do enjoy these liberties, uh, at least for a time. And you, are, you have been very kind uh, to your church and to your people in this land. And we give you thanks and praise for it. I pray that you would help us to understand these things, to understand our role as, um, as subjects, but also as those who exercise, our, uh, exercise true authority, real power in our civil, um, uh, civil realm. Give us wisdom as we explore these things and think, of these, think through these things. May we honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.